Hey guys, it's Brixie. It's Wednesday, April 28th, and I'm going to bring you a short summary of last Sunday's Sunday School lesson. Our lesson last week was about unity in the church, an always relevant topic, and our text was from 1 Corinthians. Many of you know the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. We focused on chapter 1, verses 10 through 21, and I'm not going to read it to you today, but that portion of the letter is... um, is a portion in which Paul addresses the issue of division, church division. The church in Corinth was made up of a diverse group of people, people from many different backgrounds, just like most churches are today. And several members within the church were arguing about which preacher slash teacher they preferred. Most of the members were siding with whichever teacher slash preacher baptized them. And the result was uh, the formation of three or four cliques or factions within the church that weren't getting along. And ultimately, this disagreement was escalating because church members had really just lost sight of their common goal, the common goal of any church, which is to honor God and spread the gospel in their community. So unfortunately, this topic is relevant because we still see things like this happening in God's churches today. Diversity is one of the most wonderful qualities of a healthy church. There are normally people from all different age groups, socioeconomic levels, people with varied talents and interests, all coming together in service to and with love for Jesus Christ. And that diversity in a healthy church is an invaluable resource, but those differences and the varied opinions that inevitably emerge as a result of them can lead to disagreements, just like it did for the church members in Corinth. So what are these disagreements about? What do those disagreements look like today? And how does scripture say we should address them? So what do people argue about when we say disagreements come up in God's churches today? What are those disagreements about? Well, unfortunately, the topics we have to disagree about are about as diverse as all the people in our churches. But some topics seem to come up more frequently than others. And one of those is preachers and teachers. We've all heard of church disagreements in which maybe some members express loyalty, for lack of a better word, to one teacher or preacher over another. And that's basically what was happening in Corinth. So that's one example. Preaching styles is another topic that comes up frequently. Bible translation preferences, money and how it should be used, music and worship styles. That's pretty common these days. And I know I can think of four or five local churches that have been divided over these topics just in my lifetime, just in Saline County. You might be able to think of a few few also. And sometimes these quarrels lead to church splits. If you've ever heard that term, that's when several members leave the church and move their membership. Other times, members don't actually leave. Everyone stays, but the hard feelings can persist for years and years under the surface. Your Sunday School Commentary book says it well, I think, when it says, This saddens the heart of God. And it weakens the mission of the church because it misrepresents the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not what God intended for his churches. So what's the solution? 
Congregations of individuals that come from diverse backgrounds will always have their differences, and those will sometimes lead to disagreements. But how do we prevent quarrels like the one in Corinth? Quarrels that could, if left unchecked, destroy our church unity and ultimately destroy our witness in the community. Well, here's where I'm going to go off-road for just a few minutes, so bear with me. I want to go to a passage that wasn't actually in our text, but it's one that I believe gives us a really beautiful example of how to deal with disagreements, and that's Romans 14, verses 13 through 23. I'm not going to read it to you, but I encourage you to, to try to read that this week. And before I go into this passage, I just want to make it clear that these disagreements, the one in Corinth and the other examples previously mentioned, you know, worship styles, how to use money, things like that, these are not doctrinal issues. These are issues related to people's preferences, and they aren't black and white issues that are specifically addressed in Scripture. So the Bible doesn't say that you can't use drum sets to worship, right? It's not in there. And the Bible doesn't specifically outline what percentage of our offerings should go to the youth fund versus what percentage should go to the mission fund, right? That's not in there either. So these are non-doctrinal issues, and they're the kinds of things that can lead to disagreements in a church. But again, they aren't explicitly mentioned in Scripture, and that's where Romans 14 comes in. So in Romans 14, Paul is writing to Christians who are now free to eat unclean meat. Remember how in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites they were not allowed to eat pork and certain other kinds of animals, and he deemed them unclean, and it was a sin for Jewish people to eat them. Well, when Christ died, he fulfilled all the Old Testament laws, and so Jewish people were no longer bound by them, and technically, they were now free to eat what they wanted to. And some Christians were really comfortable with this. They were enjoying their new liberties, but others were struggling with it. Um, They just didn't feel comfortable with the idea of eating these foods that had been forbidden throughout most of their nation's history. And they were really bothered that there were other Christians who were moving on so quickly and enjoying these liberties. Paul refers to these two groups as strong Christians and weak Christians. And that terminology might mislead us into thinking one group was right and the other was wrong, which I guess was true in a sense. But really, Paul was just trying to explain that one group felt comfortable with these new freedoms, while the other group still just couldn't eat the food in good conscience. So we might think, well, why should the stronger Christians, the ones who understood and wanted to enjoy these new liberties, even care about what the weaker Christians think? If you're free to do it, then just go eat that meat, whether they like it or not, right? Well, that's an understandable question, but Paul's answer to this problem is pretty clear. He says, if anything you do really bothers your fellow Christian, don't do it. He says, never put a stumbling block in the way of your brother or sister in Christ. You're free to eat this food that was once unclean, but if it really bothers your brother or sister in Christ, then you shouldn't flaunt that freedom and you should act with love in your heart and do what you need to do to pursue peace with your fellow Christian. Verse 20 actually says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Well, the good news is both of these groups eventually resolved their difference and got past this, right? We no longer have any worries about eating pork or those other unclean animals. We are so okay with it now that we even ordered Jordan's barbecue to cater our Valentine's banquets, right? So that's kind of an issue of a past, and there's a good chance we aren't going to have any congregational disagreements about food nowadays. And because of that, it may be difficult to find applications for this passage today. So let's just go back to that list from before, that list of topics that can cause disagreements in churches now. For example, preaching and teaching styles. Again, if you know someone in your Sunday school class who prefers the King James Version of the Bible over all other translations, this passage is saying, well, then just use the King James Version. Sure, you're free in Christ to use other translations, but if you're instructed to act in love first, then love over liberty. Use that King James Version as long as it bothers your brother who's attending Sunday school class. If you're building a new church building and several members of your congregation want a steeple because it shows the community that you're a church and it really bugs them that there's not a steeple, then just put up the steeple. Love over liberty. If there are members of your congregation that believe strongly that it's wrong for worship to be led by a praise band in place of a music minister and a choir, then keep the choir. Love over liberty. If members of your congregation feel strongly that saying amen after a song presentation is more reverential than clapping, then you say amen. Love over liberty. These things by themselves may not be sinful or unscriptural, but it is a sin for us to do anything that might violate the conscience of our brother in Christ or hinder their walk with God. And don't worry, you're not going to spend your entire life catering to the preferences of the weaker Christians in your congregation because in reality, we all take our turns being the weaker Christian. Okay, so there's certainly a lot to unpack in this lesson. Lots of different directions we could go in a discussion about church unity and I just really scratched the surface. Our commentary writers obviously thought this was a deep issue as well because we're going to be talking about church unity in some fashion for the next few weeks. So for today, let's maybe just challenge ourselves to think about this idea of love over liberty.